Here we go. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got on the podcast Kate Aronoff. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You are. One of these days I should really ask you how to say your name, how to say people's names before we start recording, but you know, maybe by 2025 or so. Anyway, uh, Kate is a staff writer at the New Republic um, and a a co-author of a book called A Planet to Win, which is a very good book that came out last year, if I'm not mistaken. 2019. And uh, author, sole author, is that correct, of a, of a book that's coming out uh, in just a few months, right, in uh, April, called April 20th, Overheated? Yeah. Yeah, four, <laughs> 420, nice. Um, and, um, yeah, so, you know, a writer on, on, on climate politics and all manner of other stuff. Um, and so we wanted to have you on, Kate, to talk about the Texas stuff. You know, it's like we've... We we all saw the 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 grid failure, many power plants going down um, in Texas um, and in other states to a, to a much lesser extent, from from what I've read. Uh, and you know now there's sort of, we're we're talking about the fallout. You know how how did this all uh, how did it happen? You know and and what lessons can we take away? So maybe you could start with can you tell us like sort of. What happened, you know, insofar as the cold caused the grid to so many people in Texas to lose power? Yeah, I always struggle with where to start, um, with, with, with where to talk about electric utilities, which, you know, can go back uh, as little as 20 years or as much as 100 years. I'll do, I think, which is what what's what you want, which is the sort of basic explanation of what happened in Texas. Yeah. Give give us proximate technical stuff. We can dive into the history later, but like what is, what was going on mechanically? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened in Texas where it does not get um, as cold as it got in the last week in as many places as it got cold in the last week um, is that the grid was unprepared for it to get that cold, uh, and, and for there to be a deep freeze, for there to be snow, um, for all these things, like, you know, a lot of the state's infrastructure. But, uh, in particular, uh, the sources of power that this thing called the electric, the electric reliability council, um, of Texas, um, sort of said would be available. So they said that, you know, a, a lot of natural gas, would be available in sort of wintry conditions that went offline. So pipelines froze up. Um, other, you know, power plants were unable to operate um, and just had not been sort of preparing for this sort of thing um, because of the way that the Texas's power st- uh, sector is structured. Um, and so when the storm happened, when the winter storm happened, um, basically the, the plans that ERCOT had made um, as a sort of market manager that's tasked with Getting electrons to the right place under the, under certain conditions, um, those plans just didn't work because the power sources, they wanted to be online, uh, which included a very small amount of wind and solar. Um, but again, a lot of thermal power, which includes natural gas and other fossil fuels, including coal, um, did not work. And so, um, lines were frozen up. The basic infrastructure sort of froze up. Um, and the generation, uh, w- was not able to come online. Um, and so 
The price of electricity went up dramatically, um, up to about, you know, $10,000 per kilowatt hour. uh, And the whole system sort of broke down uh, and and, uh, people, you know, were were freezing. That's a wait, isn't it a megawatt hour? So uh, yes. that's that'd be a very <laughs> high price for a kilowatt hour. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was thinking I was looking at my electricity bill and it was like five cents uh-huh. <laughs> per kilowatt hour. Anyway, yes. So that's a good um that's a good sort of summary. You know, got cold the th- the the whole electric system's not designed to work in the cold and it it broke. No good. No work in cold. Bad. And so <laughs> Um, but can you, can you tell us, you know, you mentioned market mechanisms. So, so like, what about, uh, you know, uh, 10 years ago in 2011, right? There was a big cold snap and a bunch of stuff broke and didn't, you know, not to the same degree, but it was the exact same problem where, where, um, you know, a lot of these plants, natural gas plants and so on, weren't designed to work in the cold. And, uh, and, uh, there was a report that I was actually reading a bit about that said, yeah, you need to invest in some winterization and uh, so that the stuff will work. If you have a unseasonable cold snap, it does occasionally get very cold in Texas. Um, and we I want to put a pin on that, actually, by the way, uh, so I don't forget. But uh, then uh, from what I can tell, basically nothing happened uh, they, or they whatever upgrades they made, they were not good enough. And so what is that all about? Yeah. So, I mean. Texas has a type of energy system which exists in many other places around the country, but exists in a sort of extreme form, which is a deregulated energy sector. And so, uh, and it's, and the other thing to note about Texas is that it's islanded off from the rest of the country. And so the storm that hit, hit other places in, in the region, it hit Oklahoma, um, and, you know, surrounding, surrounding states. Um, but, because Texas can't pull on power from other other states, other places where um, the storm didn't hit as badly, where uh, generation didn't freeze up, uh, it was unable to sort of to sort of meet that demand. And so the reason um, for that is because Texas's deregulation is sort of more extreme <laughs> than 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 anywhere else. And we can talk about what deregulation means, which I think is a pretty misleading term actually when it comes to um, electricity, which is. Uh, I, I would say it's best to understand deregulation as sort of a different design of, of, of regulation, um, that yeah. makes room for different actors to be involved, different profit making entities, um, to be involved. And so ERCOT, which, which is supposed to manage the sort of market for generation and make sure again that power gets to where it needs to, just didn't tell anyone that they needed to invest. There was an, an interview, um, sort of incredible interview in Texas Monthly, um, that the head of ERCOT gave to um to the magazine. And uh he says, well, you know, after 2011, we went in and we talked to um we talked to, you know, the people running these generation plants. But it wasn't like a conversation between I think he says like you know, it's not like we're coming in as your regulator and telling you to do something. It's just a kind of conversation sharing strategies. So why not? Why is it not a conversation uh, about you are the regulator? You are the body which is supposed to tell them to prepare for storms like this. And they just I'm, I'm surprised that the language wasn't about like best practices that we suggest you use. And, you know, we, we need to share these corporate best practices. And, and if you want to use them, fine. You might come up, you might innovate your own best practices that uh, also fail. But, right. It's this um, wild so, thing. And, I mean, it, this interview was given since the, um, 
I mean, since the, the, the blackouts happened and he cites a sort of success story of, uh, you know, period of cold in 2018 when everything sort of worked, um, just operating in a totally different plane of reality. So basically ERCOT is not regulating anyone, um, to, to tell, uh, to, to say that you need to weatherize your systems. Uh, you need to make sure that if, uh, there is, if something like this does happen, that you're prepared for it in a way that other, um, other, you know, market managers do that operate regionally. So um, something like the PJM interconnection, um, which serves sort of the mid-Atlantic, they have kind of mandates in, in part because they're regulated by FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, they're supposed to set standards in a sort of more direct way um, and have sure. something... Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we could try to understand the different approaches and why Texas failed so much ideologically. Uh, I, I get the idea that like we don't want regulation because the invisible hand will magically winterize us when, when necessary. Uh, but, but get, what about like, what is the ideology behind not drawing upon power in other states when your grid failed? Like, what, what, what is behind that? What did they think they were going to get out of, like, isolating their own grid from the national grid? I mean, I'm not an expert in Texas, so you maybe want to ask someone that. My, sure. my I actually, I know the answer to this one. It was because they wanted to avoid New Deal regulation in the 1930s. Uh-huh. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I mean, I think that's really what they thought they were getting was to avoid what was then the Federal Power Commission and what is now FERC, uh, because they wouldn't be crossing state lines, which is in there FERC's is. mandate. Yeah, yeah. Basically, they're they're it reminds me of that uh, the the one of my favorite quotes of all time, uh, which is from J. Edgar Hoover. Maybe it's apocryphal, but I like to believe it isn't. Um, and he's he's was testifying before Congress, and he said, I, I regret to say that we of the FBI cannot do are powerless to act in the uh, in the case of oral genital intimacy unless it has in some way obstructed interstate commerce. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, so there, you know, the Commerce Clause you're tr- is same thing with Texas. You're, you're you're hiding in your state. And so you can, you know, make yourself a little bunker. But yeah, as you say, it's, you know, patently like if you just get nailed by one thing and you can't, you know, run to, uh, you know, Oklahoma or or, or uh, Louisiana or whatever, like anybody and say, hey, you know, what, you got extra power. But I think the um, the other thing you're pointing to, right, correct me if I'm wrong about this, because because like the, the way the market's supposed to work is like, OK, you know, you you have an incentive you have extra profits if you do your winterization, you know, because if you if you spend the money and you uh, make your gas plant work, even, even when it's cold, then you'll be able to recoup that investment at a time when, you know, other places are going down. And that didn't happen, even though if they had done that, it would have made them and did make the the plants that that uh, could work like for whatever reason, like they were raking in the money. Um, but you know, a critical mass of the gas, you know, the, the plant power plant operators didn't do that. And, and I think it shows you that like those market incentives are just not good enough to, to tell, uh, these, uh, players that what they need to be doing, because, you know, you, you, it's a very uncertain thing. It's like, it might come next year. It might come in 10 years. It might come in 15 years or it might come, uh, you know, one year uh, after another. 
And, um, you know, with, with especially modern capitalism, it's short-term profits. We want guaranteed high profits and not any sort of like speculative, you know, sort of, you know, a stitch in time saves nine type thinking. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting just because, I mean, so much of it is specific, um, to Texas in some sense, but in other ways, I mean, what happened in Texas is generalized to, to some degree. So the thing you were talking about, about the power not, not being available where it was in other places, um, that in some ways is a sort of specific thing, which is that other, um, like regional transmission organizations will have these, these other market managers for regional, um, uh, regional grids will have something called a capacity market, which sort of pays the, uh, generators to make sure that their stuff will be online. And that, you know, is, is payment that's regular and, and it's not, um, it's, it's something they can rely on, you know, whereas in Texas, it's all about the price. And so the theory is that, uh, if the price is high enough that the capacity will magically be online, um, which is just like a great bit of sort of economics wisdom, um, is that, you know, if the price is right, they will come. Uh, whereas it was not, you know, the price was very high. Like if enough, uh, natural gas generation have been able to operate, it could, you know, that could have made someone very rich and just didn't work. Right. It, it just was, was unprepared. And I think the the bigger thing too, is like the, the system just like wasn't prepared for the sort of like black swan risk of the sort that's getting much more common under climate change, right? I think there's, you know, the debate about attribution science as to whether um, what happened in Texas is, you know, the direct result of climate change. I think there's still a bit of debate on that. Um, but these sorts of things are going to be more likely. These big storms, big, um, you know, weather emergencies are going to happen more often. Uh, and the system was just not set up to deal with that. It's a 20th century system, um, which really is not, is not designed, um, to handle this, this sort of shock. And then the price mechanism in particular is a really bad way <laughs> to deal with it, um, as opposed to sort of a longer term planning perspective, which, uh, regulators in Texas and, you know, to some extent nationally have just totally sort of walked away from that kind of planning, planning conversation. Speaking of the science, though, can, can you uh, just give us a little uh, dive into that? Um, because I've sort of half paid attention to this over the years, but it seems like there's a reasonably strong case that that, you know, paradoxically, um, this could, you know, these sorts of weird cold snaps could be the result of climate change, the way that um, the you know, warming temperatures in the Arctic has disrupted the polar vortex that usually circles the North Pole and made the jet stream go all weird. Um, but apparently, I don't know, I guess some scientists aren't quite sold on that yet. What's the story there? Yeah, I haven't uh, really dug too much into this debate. So you may know just as much as I do. But my understanding is that um, the sort of warming temperatures in the Arctic um, have disrupted the jet stream, which generally tends to keep cold air further north. And so with that disruption, that air is, can come south um, uh, along with sort of starting something like that. That is probably the extent to which I am qualified to talk about. Um, and and I think just stream. generally the, 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 it's like an epistemological thing, right? So, so like the difference between, as far as I understand, weather and climate is that 
in, in terms of climate change, we know that these storms generally are being produced or, or these extreme weather events are happening uh, as a result of climate change. That doesn't mean that we can point to a particular weather event and say that specifically is due to, to human caused climate change. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it, they definitely are generally, but but that doesn't mean we know that this one in particular was. Um, but but the point is still, I think, uh, fair for for planning. You know, as we go forward, that um, you know, capitalism uh, and its contribution to climate change is is putting us in a position where more unpredictable and extreme uh, natural events are going to put a lot of pressure on these already terrible market-based uh, deregulated solutions. Uh, although, as you say, there's a complication because sometimes deregulation can be good if it's, if it's democratized and, and, and a local uh, response. So, so maybe we can get into kind of, I don't know, a socialist vision. I don't know, Ryan, if you wanted to go in a different direction, but, sure. um, you know, ch- chapter three of your book, right? Rebuilding the world from a planet to win talks about big, clean public grid. It talks about, uh, uh, you know, a national democratic grid. Uh, and then generally just, how the opposite of what these idiots did in Texas seems to be a, a democratized um, kind of collaborative effort to make sure that people's needs are put first rather than, um, you know, profit motive directing what happens. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, what we what we talk about in the book um, tries to sort of cut across some of the more, I think, circular debates about what the energy transition so- should look like. So on the one hand, you know, there, there's a sort of big... Um, body of thinking about energy democracy, which uh, can sort of privilege very local, uh, local forms of power. And so looking at, you know, things like community solar co-ops, uh, microgrids, all this stuff, all of which is, is, is fine in itself. And, and sort of what we say um, is that there's something between that and um, the, you know, what we might call the sort of thorium bros, <laughs> totally centralized, you know, right. nuclear power, um, we're actually fairly, you know, I myself and, and my co-authors are, um, a little bit agnostic about, about nuclear, but, um, it's a question of sort of democratization, right? And so there's something between the hyper local, um, what we call solar separatism and a totally, you know, uh, top down energy system that's just kind of like big, you know, big scale solar and, and, you know, a lot of sort of literature about yeah. um, what an energy transition looks like sort of bears that out, right? Is that you need kind of both, right? You need big centralized generation, um, big transmission lines, big federal power projects, and you need things like microgrids, which would have been really helpful in Texas this week um, because when people's power goes out, being able to generate solar on your roof or on your block um, can be really helpful and and can you know be right. the difference between somebody operating a life saving medical device or or not and so we um, try to sort of thread those things together um, and really put the through line of that as being energy democracy right these these things should should right. work to serve um, serve people and really take the profit motive um, out of it which isn't to say right that there won't be private sector involvement. I mean, we're, we're talking about a transition that has right. to happen in the next 10 years, you know, and, and the sector, as we know, is, is very much controlled by private sector, sector actors. Um, but not having whether or not the transition happens be held hostage to somebody getting very rich off of it. And I think what they're seeing, it's just a, a really That's bad, key, yeah, yeah a, a really bad fit, right, to, to have, um, yeah, have yeah. electricity be provisioned on a for-profit basis. 
Now that makes sense. I, I think a lot of the solutions that the the left is coming up with probably involve both of those things, right? Like uh, big national policies, whether it's Medicare for all or the Green New Deal, that involve um, kind of the resources and provisions that can't just be provided locally or by state governments or, or even by mutual aid or what have you, um, that, that have that backstop, federal job guarantee, Medicare for all those things. But then the complexities and differences locally also probably require, uh, these decentralized complements as, as well. So it, it seems to, to, to fit with a lot of, um, what you write about for, for kind of, you know, prioritizing caring for each other and, and democratizing uh, our decisions rather than, as you say, let, letting uh, the incentives for the rich control. So, um, yeah, I, I guess that, that that makes a lot of sense to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And and to to uh, drill down on that point a little bit, um, you know, there there's this really irritating like Instantly on the right, you know, it was like, oh, the the turbines, it was all the turbines. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez <laughs> has been sneaking around like the Hamburglar <laughs> in Texas for the last 10 years <laughs> and putting up wind turbines in everybody's backyard. And now 20% of the net capacity is wind turbines. And it's like, this is bullshit. You know, as you said, it was it was mostly the natural gas. That, and they don't even expect to generate that much wind during the winter down there. But it is the case that Texas has installed a shitload of wind over the past uh, uh, while. I just looked up, actually. Um, in 2019, the uh, total wind generated, the total wind like production of electricity outstripped hydropower for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an, an increase in uh, four, about 400 percent in the since 2009 in a decade. And that's just a huge increase. And it is the case that our current grid, not just in Texas, uh, is really not well suited to uh, incorporating those kinds of power sources like wind and solar that are kind of erratic. And they're, you know, erratic in different ways. And it will take, you know, significant upgrades to the grid and to how like electricity is just sort of moved around in general to uh and 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 consumed uh at the same time to to accommodate like increasing you know keeping that trend going which is good yeah but it's like it's going to take some work right i mean a lot of work right and so i you know just to to start off the conversation i feel like a uh under appreciated fact about the energy transition is it's not just we have to change uh how we're powering what we're powering now, but a lot more activity has to move on to the grid. So, you know, everything from transportation to home heating and cooling, you know, uh, an enormous amount of stuff has to, has to rely on the grid. Um, and that grid has to, at the same time, be transitioning over to renewable you know, clean forms of power. So that's, that's just a massive task. All, you know, all with, while climate change is happening. <laughs> and so all while the grid is under tremendous stress, um, from different places. And the, I mean, the, the irony of it all is that the grid is considered the sort of low hanging fruit of decarbonization, right? It's considered the easiest thing to do. Um, and that's why, you know, in, in Biden's plan, the target for, um, power sector decarbonization is 2035, whereas the overall economy goal is, is 2050, net zero by 2050. 
Um, but it's this enormously, you know, complicated thing. It's not impossible. It just requires, you know, the sort of planning and investment that has been sort of anathema to, um, bipartisan politics for the last 50 or so years. So, you know, in, in, in bringing on wind and solar, I mean, the big task, uh, is, is, this issue of demand response. I mean, making sure that, you know, when everybody is sort of coming home uh, at the end of the day, turning on the TV, making dinner, hopefully on their electric ranges, um, that, that, <laughs> that, that you can get power to where it needs to be. Um, the same thing when people wake up, right? Making sure that, um, you know, we have a sort of system of energy distribution and transmission, which can account for changes in energy demand at different places. And that, you know, as we talk about in a planet to win involves some things that might, you know, make people sort of uncomfortable for the reasons that things like, um, you know, 5G make people uncomfortable in some ways, right? There's a question of, you know, uh, we need an enormous amount of data about when people are binging Netflix and when people are, um, you know, making coffee and things like that. And that has to sort of be a, a part of the picture of, um, of the transition. There's more basic stuff too, right? That like our grid is set up to distribute power um, instead of to accept it. Whereas if we have, you know, a system that has an enormous amount of rooftop solar or community solar, um, the, the grid has to be able to take that in and, and get it out to other places. Um, right. And so, so that's all sort of part of the mix. And then you add on to that things like storage, right? We don't have great solutions for storage now. Um, you know, batteries are getting better, but are not where we might want them to be if we're relying, you know, on a, a much greater, um, to a much greater d- degree on renewable power. And I think there's really interesting, um, just considerations about like what power looks like in that situation, right? It's like who, you know, who is managing all this data, um, that the grid is generating, um, you know, uh, who is profiting and uh, profiting off of it, of course, um, who's working, you know, what is the role of these sort of third party solar providers? So I think there's, there's all of these questions that, um, are the sort of technical considerations of what the energy transition looks like, which I think people, you know, who, spend their time thinking about energy systems, um, have a lot to say about who do, you know, energy modeling or in, you know, energy centers and in different universities. But there's also all of these like much thornier sort of social science questions, um, that are bound up in that, that I don't think get, get talked about sort of as much (laughs) when we think about, um, what, what decarbonization looks like. I don't know if that was an answer right. to your to your question. Yeah, but. well, I, I'm immediately interested in. Uh, I, I didn't realize that we would have to go from surveillance capitalism to surveillance socialism, but I'm willing to <laughs> to, to, to I'm willing to deal with that because I, you know, look, they always said that socialism would require a lot of meetings, and and so I guess there's going to be a lot of hearings about how to how to do this in a way that uh, doesn't support the same kind of authoritarian tyranny. But um, but the other thing in your book that that speaks to what you're talking about in terms of the complexity is that socialists can innovate too, man. And also that the government is a great source of innovation. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually know, Ryan, did you know that the uh, stimulus under Obama established Tesla? I did not know this. Um, it was a, yeah, it, it was, a DOE loan, right? Or the uh, mm-hmm. ARPA-E. Yeah. The same loan that Solyndra got, infamously. And, Part yeah. of the same loan guarantee program. So, so basically Elon Musk is Barack Obama's fault. That's- <laughs> In some sense. Yeah. 
Thanks, well, that's Obama. a. I mean, the thing about Solyndra is that there are not nearly enough failures, right? Because it was like that was like the only mm-hmm. one, and like practically every single investment made money, which just suggests that their investments are way too conservative. You know, it's like give me my moonshot stuff. Where's my small modular yes. thorium reactors and all the, <laughs> not, you know, other right. goofy nonsense. Let a, let a, a a thousand flowers bloom and a thousand cylinders fail, and then we'll we'll have more innovation. It'll be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like the. I mean, the economist Mariana Mazzucato. That's sort of her um, wheelhouse, and I think I think we quote her um, a decent amount in the in the book. But right, yeah. If if you were running a, a sort of government innovation program that looked to be uh, as it should be, you know, more risk taking than venture capitalists, like there should have been many more Solyndras <laughs> who fail. And I mean, it's funny also just like the losses incurred by Solyndra, like sort of pale in comparison to private sector losses on like any number of other dumb startups. Um. <laughs> yeah. The, the unkillable, just money torching the Uber has lost like $30 billion since 2009 and it just mm-hmm. will not die. It's just going to be buying state legislatures until the end of time, apparently. So it just mm-hmm. got, they're just piped directly into the Saudi oil fund. I mean, they just got a big <laughs> straw that goes straight from, you know, Silicon Valley or whatever, all the way across to, you know, Saudi Arabia. And it's just, and that, that, uh, a uh, big investment fund by oh what's his name SoftBank. Uh-huh. Um, anyways, uh, speaking a little bit about like the politics of it, you know we're 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 you know we've been talking about the systems and about the uh, you know the way that like the sort of technical aspects of it need to be upgraded, but it's fascinating to me that. When you're, you know, you're thinking about this from a sort of like macro scale political angle, you got, okay, the grid is that like the power system is changing very fast. Like wind is getting big. Solar is getting big. You know, the prices are just absolutely through the floor. And uh, that's going to that's going to throw a lot of people out of work. Um, you know, there there is I was just reading about. This uh, solar plant, or sorry, uh, old coal-fired power plant near where I lived in Colorado that's going down. And it's just losing a whole bunch of really good-paying jobs. Uh, you know, it's a bunch of coal miners who made like 86000 bucks or something like that. It's like those jobs are pretty hard to come by. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's like the solar thing is just barely getting started. Jobs don't quite pay as well, at least not yet. There aren't as many of them. Uh, it's because it's less labor-intensive. Um and so, you know, the the logic of that, especially coming out of the pandemic, when we still we're still down, you know, 10 million jobs or however many, uh, it leads you directly to something like a Green New Deal. It's like we need to make this thing happen. We need to make all these huge upgrades to our system and we need to, you know, provide for like huge chunks of the labor force that are going to be thrown out of work, you know, in some politically strategic states in many cases. Uh, and so, you know, we should just do a giant uh, government investment program to achieve all those goals and give uh, everyone a job uh, doing those things. Right. And I mean, whether you're, uh, you know, a centrist Democrat or AOC, you know, the logic of it seems just totally unimpeachable to me. Right. And so what uh, in, in your view, do you see this kind of argument taking hold uh amongst like the you know sort of swing votes in the in the senate and the house and and in the biden team um i think 
the extent to which that logic is taking hold uh, among people like, you know, centrist swing votes in the house, I don't know if I could, I could really speak to it, but, but I think you're right. And I, I think the logic, like, I don't, I just don't see, um, much of an alternative. Like if not, not even, you know, just on the speaking in terms of decarbonization and kind of what we do want to do about climate change. But I think also just like maintaining democratic majorities gets really difficult yeah. amid uh, an energy transition, which is already happening and is happening in really sloppy, um, painful ways for a lot of people. I mean, the coal industry is the, the biggest example of this, right? We know what happens when coal companies go bankrupt. So they screw people over, you know, they, they throw people out of work. And I, I think a lot of the language about, um, kind of jobs and environment, which is, you know, better than it has been at different points in history. But it also just seems sort of circuitous in, in, in some sense, because you have, you know, unions which represent workers in the extractive sector who will say, well, the jobs in, uh, in, in, in solar and wind aren't as good as they're in the coal sector. And that's true, right? That's, that's true. You know, you are not going to make $86,000 a year installing solar panels on, on a, a rooftop. But why are the coal jobs good, right? Why are jobs in the extractive sector so good? Because there were strikes, right? There were, there, there was a lot of organizing, uh, you know, many, many years ago, uh, to make them good jobs. People died, right? In order to make coal mining jobs good jobs. And it's just that gets left out of the conversation for some reason. And I think it's part of taking the sort of namesake of the Green New Deal seriously, right? Because the Green New Deal, I think we can think about as a big investment program, as a thing which spent a lot of money building public infrastructure, which it, it was, but it also knit together a coalition, right? And it, you know, things like the Wagner Act um, helped to build the labor movement, you know, and empowered working people through unions in a way that it hadn't before. And that became a solid base of the Democratic Party for decades to come and sustained democratic majorities for decades to come. And so, you know, those traditional extractive sectors, which were made very solid middle-class jobs in part through the labor movement, uh, are now failing for a number of reasons, but are failing already. You know, that's not the EPA coming in. It's not the big hand of government that's shutting down coal plants. Um, that is, you know, happening. Oil jobs are, are, are also, you know, have really taken a hit, um, over the pandemic. That process will keep happening in ways that are too slow to really make us feel better about climate change. Um, and also in, in ways that are, you know, just destructive to people who are working those jobs and the sort of communities that have been built up around them. Uh, and so the, sort of jobs in the new energy economy have to be organized, right? I mean, you need to organize solar workers. Wind is, is a bit more union than, um, than, than solar. Um, but though, you know, solar company bosses are bosses and it's not that like they will just become good jobs at some point magically. Like people have to fight for it, right? And unions have to go out and organize those workers, uh, and, and, you know, create the sort of coalition which can sustain, uh, sustain the sort of massive political project, which is decarbonization and which is, you know, the Green New Deal. And I think the, you know, the backstop to that obviously are, um, much more generous social safety net programs because we know an economy which runs on clean energy is just not as 
labor intensive, right? That energy is just not as labor intensive as the fossil fuel economy for good reason. And that's, that's good. Um, but you need to have a way to support not just those workers, um, to find new work. But, you know, if you're like a housekeeper in Midland, Texas or a teacher in West Virginia, like your job is bound up in the fossil fuel economy. And so you need, you know, uh, teaching, uh, miners or oil drill, oil drillers to code is not going to like really help the many, many people who are bound up in the fossil fuel economy. And so there has to be like, you know, there's, I, I just don't really see an alternative to that, which results in anything other than like utter chaos and decades of GOP majorities, which does not run through like a much stronger social safety net. Yeah. Yeah. Th- th- this, this speaks to such a hobby horse of ours, which is there's this conventional wisdom that like milk toast, limp dish rag centrism is, uh, more politically successful <laughs> and, and, and is right. Like is the way people win office and the way to keep majorities. And, and, you know, the nice thing about climate change and the disaster that it presents to us existentially is we need huge action, but in fact, these interconnected problems, um, as you suggest, lead to the possibility for the kind of solidarity that historically with the New Deal and, and other historical instances give you the kind of possibility for the kind of politics that can actually make change happen mm-hmm. and can actually succeed. Um, so maybe you could juxtapose a little bit what you talk about the faux Green New Deal, uh, whether it's the, the failures of the Obama administration, maybe what we fear with Biden being so quiet about Texas, and, and the idea that the Green New Deal shouldn't be so much about, I don't know, why are you talking about race and gender and indigenous questions. Shouldn't we just talk about electricity, right? Um, so maybe you can speak even a, a bit further about that contrast and why uh, the only hope we have is for this kind of intersectional, um, you know, solidarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of what we what we call the faux, the faux Green New Deal. Initially, in, in some version of this, we we're going to call it a skinny Green New Deal after um, Paul Ryan's skinny <laughs> budget. <laughs> we're just like, that's a that's too much to explain in a 100 page book. Um, so we, <laughs> we went with the faux Green New Deal. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's this idea that climate policy should just focus on climate policy, which has been, or, you know, on climate policy sort of like proper, which has been the operating logic of every, you know, Beltway Green Group for the last 30 years. I mean, as long as climate policy has sort of been in the national conversation since like the late, the late 80s. And so, you know, we should just focus on the energy system. We should just focus on, on, on decarbonization. Uh, and, you know, bringing on more clean power, those sorts of things. And anything other than that, anything like a job guarantee or Medicare for all or, you know, any number of the things that are included as, as, as big priorities, including racial justice um, in in the Green New Deal, that's a distraction, right? And if you make it too controversial, if you load it up with, with these sort of extraneous demands that that just distracts from the real vision will make it harder to pass. Um, and so what we argue in, uh, in, in contrast to that is for what we call a virtuous cycle, right? And so that like the original New Deal, you need to build a coalition uh, that can sustain this project for decades to come and that can sustain, you know, small D and in our case, big D democratic majorities um, for, for many, many years because we know this will be a long-term project. And so in order to do that, you need to make people's lives better <laughs> in the here and now. <laughs> and uh, climate policy, um, most famously, you know, in 2009 around the cap and trade fight, just has not been good at making that case. Uh, even when there's sort of some conversation about green jobs, uh, even when there's, you know, some lip service paid to like investment in 
uh, frontline communities or, you know, other, other sorts of things that are, are framed as making a policy more egalitarian. Um, that, you know, has not, has not done, done the trick. And so what we argue for in the book is to, to, you know, really show people that, uh, a decade of a Green New Deal, that, you know, a, a, a democratic and, you know, the, that the democratic party to, to just put it very bluntly can make people's lives better. Um, and so that, you know, has to be at the sort of front of mind, uh, if we're going to embark on this massive, massive project of changing the energetic basis of capitalism, which is what, what, uh, an energy transition has to do, which is what, what a Green New Deal has to do. And then, you know, that, that is not a, um, you know, I think it, it's fortunate that that goes along with, with much more redistributive policies, um, and, and other changes which, which might be, you know, very positive for, for the vast majority of people. Um, but if you just try to do the climate things, that's a much harder pill to swallow, uh, on, on its own. And it, you know, it will hurt people if you don't pair that with, with bigger social safety net programs with, um, you know, a real rethinking of, of who, who makes well, actually, not just kind of who gets it. Um, and so, you know, we think those those things really need to go together. That That's the irony, right? That if, if you do it the neoliberal way, you know, because they'll scare you that the leftists, they're going to make you give up all your, your pleasures and self-flagellate and really give up all, all, you know, as opposed to kind of like the champagne socialists that, that Ryan and I are, at least, um, <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, you, you get, you get the, the yellow jackets, you know, being pissed off because they were forced to, to buy these, you know, uh, these kind of cars that, 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 that they were jacked up, um, you know, the taxes on and bore the brunt of, of the costs and, and so are rightly, you know, pissed off. Uh, actually, it's the neoliberals who want to punish and say that you're individually responsible for things, right? And, and actually, like, the way that this structural radical change, uh, limits growth and consumption is not in a way that punishes people, but actually gives people more of their needs and, and allows for more free time. And, and, and I think it's really important that the left doesn't try to, like, you know, mimic that neoliberal kind of, sac- like, the form of sacrifice we do is solidarity, not in terms of, like, punishing ourselves and not letting ourselves enjoy the good things, right? That's not necessary to addressing climate change. I don't know. I, th- I think that's an important point that you make. Yeah, really. I mean, that, I mean, just for as long as it's been, because, you know, climate change sort of enters the conversation in the U.S. at a time when neoliberalism is really at its zenith, right? When that logic is just totally ubiquitous across both parties um, that, you know, if, if something's wrong, it's your fault. Uh, and the government has a very, very little responsibility that the government, you know, not only isn't incapable of doing good things, but that's sort of a bad idea. It's a bad idea to imagine that the government could, could, you know, make people's lives better. Um, and so climate change, just the, the conversation gets sort of ossified around that sort of thinking and that, you know, even dating back to like, um, you know, Jimmy Carter, right? When, uh, around the energy crisis. And uh, I mean, sort of, you know, the energy crisis in 1979. Um, you know, he sort of comes out with this real austerian logic. Uh, about, you know, how we all need to make collective sacrifice that we're not going to sort of get through, uh, you know, get through the next, the next couple of years if everybody doesn't sort of like tighten their belt and, uh, stiffen their lip. Yeah. yeah. Collective sacrifice is always somehow individual sacrifice. It's always like, if I don't, you know, use a metal straw, then, then that's why the world's ending, you know? Right. <laughs> like- right. And so that's, there's just no reason why that has to be how we, how we talk about climate change, which, you know, the Green New Deal, um, I think is the framework for saying this is not about 
everyone sort of making a sacrifice. It's about, you know, a very, very small number of people making a big sacrifice, which is you're a fossil fuel executive. You can't keep being a fossil fuel executive. Um, but, you know, there's there's no reason why uh, everyone's life has to be made worse um, by, by climate policy. And in fact, can be can be made much better if we decide to distribute society's vast resources in a way that's more more equal. Yeah, uh, Rick Perlstein's book has a good a good discussion of Carter, <clears throat> his new one, um, about how he really, really believed in austerity for its own. It was like his the moral center of his universe, kind of, you know, hair shirt uh, miserliness, and it's something that I think you know that it's more appealing than than it might uh, seem. You know, it's like. There are a lot of people out there who who make their living sort of like, uh, you know, saving scold types of people. Mr. Money Mustache is like living a very, a very uh, low, you know, consumption lifestyle. And, you know, as, as you say in your book, right, like it definitely is the case that Americans need to use like less resources, like, like our impact on you know, the biosphere and on like the, you know, minerals and stuff like that, that does need to go down. But mm-hmm. like American um, lifestyles are so incredibly inefficient that like we we could really slash the amount of, you know, carbon we're, we're uh, putting out and the amount of, you know, iron ore that we require every year. If we can, you know, do the good old reduce, reuse, recycle, insulate our homes and so forth. And maybe in a few cases we could say like, well, people should probably eat less meat. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe that for moral reasons, if nothing else. But like you don't have to be, go, you know, go back to living in, you know, just like a, a tenement, you know, with a hundred <laughs> other people type of thing. Right. Like hey, you could still have like what all the important ingredients of luxury, quote unquote, you know, and, and including especially a lot of leisure time mm-hmm. uh, without, you know, and, and still have a, a you know decarbonized economy. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I don't go, you know, full uh, full luxury automated communism. Like, I think that's that's not necessarily like the, the vision we're we're aiming at. But but, um, you know, the, the, the ways in which. The U.S. in particular is so resource and energy intensive are not making us happier, right? It's not, it doesn't make anyone, you know, anyone's life better to sit in traffic for two hours in LA. Um, or, you know, to buy to, a, buy a huge truck just because the other person has a huge truck and you're terrified of being killed in, in a, you know, collision. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Our, our, our Hummers are not making us, are not making us happier. Um, and there's just, there's just better ways to do it. I mean, the U.S. is, I think, you know, a, a deeply strange place in, uh, in the world. That is true. Words were never spoken. I think. <laughs> and like, there's just different ways of designing societies, which are not, you know, in themselves that revolutionary. Um, you know, I think people, people sort of talk about the book as being, being sort of utopian. Um, but it's not that far off, right. From like a lot of stuff, which is, you know, present to some degree in places like Norway. Um, right. You know, public transit systems, like public housing, you know, we, we use the, this phrase from, um, George, George Mombi about 
George Mambiat um, on, on public luxury versus, you know, private sufficiency, right? And so you don't need to sort of have everything, you all the pleasures of life contained in your one bedroom uh, or, you know, single family home uh, in a single family owned uh, neighborhood, right? <laughs> that we can enjoy these things together. We can have, you know, cities that sort of are designed for, um, different forms of, 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 of social life and, you know, that, that are just set up in order to make, um, make public luxury possible, which they're, they're not currently. Yeah. If we had the rail network of like 1910 available, <laughs> like I would experience that as a massive upgrade in my quality of life. You know, it's like, yes. like you, you could, take a train just about anywhere and it you know it was like a few hours from new york to chicago you could take it overnight and sleep in the you know the sleeper car and it was a reasonable price i mean people talk about high speed rail like it's some kind of you know like crazy foreign invention but like we were halfway there by you know the 1920s and we just deleted all that stuff so you know it's not exactly foreign to our own experience either you know uh uh i mean Definitely, you could you can point to Japan and and mm -hmm. so on as having very advanced rail technology. But like, even if we're just we're just a you know fifty years out of date, <laughs> right. had nineteen sixties you know Shinkansen or however you pronounce that uh, high speed technology, well that'd be pretty great. Yeah, I yeah, and and you know it's just like a matter of sort of disempowering the, the <laughs> sort of political forces which made us you know tear up rail lines and, and, you know, make design cities like Detroit to be, uh, structured around like single cars, uh, <laughs> and really like, you know, right. disincentivize public transit in, in, in big ways. Well, they, they, you know, neoliberalism has, has destroyed the social and, and not just like the infrastructure and the ability to travel on train, but, but just like shaping desires around just individual consumption and, and the ability to like, um, buy your way to happiness and, and just, you know, these are all things that would be changed together in this vision, right? Like, like we would have new possibilities of social interaction, new possibilities of, of play and leisure, both in terms of the time available and the like methods that people connect through. And, um, I don't know. It, it just seems like a much happier, more flourishing type of vision um, that quite obviously anyone who isn't a fossil fuel exec would want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would love to, especially after a year in a pandemic, would love to like yeah, take right? the train to the Jersey Shore and smoke legal weed. <laughs> Like, for that's sure. my vision for the Green uh, New Deal. Absolutely. You know, not totally, but I think that's an important piece of it. Uh, no, you got, you got to mix weekend, in some psychedelics right? as well. three-day weekend. Yeah. Four days, maybe, if we're, if we're being ambitious. <laughs> that's the thing that would cut down a lot of carbon emissions is, you know, one fewer working day. You know, we could keep going in that direction. A lot less uh, commuting, a lot less mm -hmm. energy produced, right? Totally. So. Yeah. Yeah, maybe as a closing point, um, you know, you talk about uh, – reducing working hours, you know, there being less labor demand possibly over the longer term. But you look at one place where the U.S. is really uh, does has higher employment, you know, performance, quote unquote, than than, uh, you know, Nordic countries, European countries. It's uh, the employment rate of people over 65. <laughs> it's like basically we don't retire our old people. 
And so if we could just like, you know, as you say, put in some, you know, decent like minimum benefit for Social Security and like patch up Medicare and so on and like get those jobs spread out into the, you know, the younger population who then work less hours themselves. I mean, that seems like a, a great way to sort of accomplish a lot of good things all at once. Yeah. I mean, it's just funny that like so much of the um there's so much debate about like the robots taking our jobs and, you know, that <laughs> that, that like uh, as if, you know, there are not just people who are massively overworked all over our economy, like stringing together three different jobs, which, you know, in, 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 in many cases, you know, will not be automated. But like there's a lot of menial low wage work, which can be done by robots. We should just have a society that makes that OK. <laughs> like Totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, any, any final thoughts about, I mean, there's a lot of uh, hope and despair at the same time with this Biden administration and, and kind of the possibility of politics. And we know that mass mobilization strikes, labor militancy, there's a lot that's important. But, um, you know, what are you going to be looking for in terms of how the dynamic between what the grassroots mobilization organization um, is doing? Uh, you know, what are you going to be looking for in terms of the, the Biden administration uh, and and how we can push them or or work you know uh, alongside electoral politics. What, what's a what's going to give you a clue into what strategies we should employ? Yeah, I mean the thing that I heard from folks in the in the climate movement, sort of coming into the Biden administration, was you know we're not going to give Biden the grace period that Obama got uh, in, in 2009, right? Um, and we're not very far in, right? You know, it's it's February. He's been in been office for, for about a month. Um, but I think, you know, I, <laughs> I think we have not seen quite the end of the honeymoon period, at least on climate. I think on, you know, things like immigration, that mask has come off a little more quickly um, than right. another than in other places. Um but I, you know, I think that the promise sort of coming in from sort of more, more activist edges of the, the climate left was to really, you know, hold Biden's feet to the fire on this stuff. I mean, he's not, he's not going to do anything out of the goodness of his heart. I mean, no <laughs> U.S. president does. Um, arguably no politician really does with, with some, you know, very few exceptions. Uh, and I, I just think, you know, nothing's gonna, gonna come without a fight. Like, I think we've seen almost probably like the exhaustion of what will come based on like kind of pressure exerted in the presidential campaign to like move the, you know, make the climate platform better than it certainly much better than it would have been. Otherwise, you know, we've seen a raft of executive orders, but ultimately like that just can't go very far um, without a lot of, a lot of pressure in the streets. And then I think until that happens, we probably won't see, won't see very much. Great. Well, um, Kate Aronoff, uh, the, the, the book, the old book is called A Planet to Win. The new book is called Overheated. We will link to those in our show notes. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was great.